Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Ace Couple Podcast. My name is Courtney. I am here with my spouse, Royce. And if you are listening to this podcast on the week that it is released, I want to wish each and every one of you a very, very happy Ace Week. Every year, the last full week in October is Ace Week. It is our longest-running asexual exclusive pride event out there. And if you're one of the early birds and you're listening to this the very day it is released, I want to wish you an additionally special Disabled Ace Day. This happens on Wednesdays during Ace Week. And I am so thrilled that today for our special Ace Week episode, we have a phenomenal guest. This is someone who has been on our master list of people we want to talk to eventually for a very long time. So we are so happy that we finally have the opportunity. So I want to get right to it. So please go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners. Hello, everybody. Um, many of you probably know me as the Asexual Goddess. I um, have a YouTube channel and I also have a Twitter so I'm usually on those, you know, talking about the asexual experience as a Black person and vastly different topics such as disabilities, um, you know, mental health, and every now and then adoption. And we are so, so happy to have you on today for Disabled Ace Day, but also just to tap into your wealth of knowledge and experience in different areas. I don't know if you want to dive immediately right into, but when we were talking about uh, the prospect of talking about adoption and the intersection thereof. That's something that is a topic that I personally, as a child, did not know very much about. I did not grow up around a lot of people that had experience with adoption, but I think like a lot of Americans who grew up in very Christian areas, I kind of always heard the like, adoption is a great option, or people talking about adoption being like a very altruistic thing to do in sort of an idealized kind of savory way. And, and then as an adult, I began to befriend people who have gone through often very traumatic experiences with adoption or foster care systems. And so the, the last several years, I, this has been one of the topics that I specifically go out of my way and try to learn more about. And the internet's been great for that. Making friends has been great for that. But I don't hear a lot of discussion about this topic in our ACE community. So I'm, I'm really excited to dig into it. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'll, I agree. Like we, you know, as a society definitely kind of push adopted people to the side. I noticed like people in the foster care system, people in the adoption care system only talk about that when we're talking about like abortion, which is something I noticed, especially you know, with the Wade versus Roe getting repealed, it's like everybody only wants to talk about adoption in the sense of like, don't abort, adopt. And it's like everybody that I saw like during that time that's adopted was like, you know what, if you want to abort your child, do that. If I would have been okay with that, you know, because the adoption system is more than what people make it out to be. And it, it has its good sides, obviously, just like anything. And then it has its bad sides, right? And to most people, it has more bad than good. Because on the obvious side of it, it's like you might have, the child might have to deal with sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, neglect, you know, being treated differently because people kind of view biological kids as better than adopted kids for some reason. It's 
it's just like the way people talk about even how they're like, I don't want any, like, I don't want to adopt kids. I want to like my own biological kids. They're like undertones with that, you know? It's just so much to the adoption system that we don't think about. Like you're basically setting the kid up for abandonment, right? That's a big part of it. You're going to have some type of abandonment issues when you get ripped away from your like biological family. Because like I always tell people, I'm like, I think there's a study and it says like, like a child knows their mother right in the womb like you know your mom's heartbeat you know you don't know much but you can like feel your mother so i'm like when you get ripped away from your mother as a child that has a lot of different like things that come from that and so like people don't really get that but you know i'm trying to like open that conversation up a lot more because it's a lot to the foster care adopted system Do you find that or do you believe based on your own experience that there's anything sort of like physiological about that? I mean, aside from the obvious, like you have to reconcile that cognitively and you're going to come at that differently at different points in your life. But when you were saying I you you feel your mother, you know, your mother, do you like feel it (laughs) physiologically? I would say yes. Like, you're always aware of it in many different ways, even like as a kid. Like, you always know something's going on, right? Like, for me, um, and I mean, it's more cognizant, I guess, but you know, I think for me, it was a little different because my family always told me that I was adopted. It was never like, keep it hush hush, it's a secret. So, like, I always knew. And then on top of that, like, the way that the system is set up, like, I'm going to visit my siblings and my mom and stuff like that. So, like, physically, you know, something is like kind of different than what most people deal with because you don't go and visit your siblings and mom like separately like that so it was kind of it was a little different um but I think it would be different for me if I was like I didn't know but you know even then I think that the kids who don't have that idea that like I might be adopted type thing they don't have that they probably know like you can kind of feel it like something might be a little off or like certain things are adding up and stuff like that so I feel like that also is like a big thing And how does that play into one sense of identity? Because we we have all these identities, whether it's sexual orientation, race, romantic orientation, there are so many different identities that make up a whole person. So I'm I'm just curious what your experience is as as a queer person as as an ace person what what are the intersections sort of there with your experience as an adoptee as well it's pretty interesting now, especially like being an adult with it. Um, I think a lot of the parts of my identity where when I was a child, I didn't think too much about it. You know, it wasn't that big of an issue because I was like, okay, like, you know, I got adopted, cool, whatever. I'm aware of it. But at the time, it didn't affect me. Right. And then now that I'm dealing with a lot of different mental health issues and stuff, I'm wondering like, okay, are the abandonment issues that, you know, the symptoms are those kind of linked to me being adopted? And I have to ask those questions and as a person that's adopted and has faced abandonment issues talking to my adoptive parents it's hard because they're like no 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 that's just how you are like you just you know an introverted person you're just this and that and it has nothing to do with you being adopted and I'm like no you have to like include that right you have to make that a part of your identity so that you can understand like the different parts 
how does it affect my mental health? As we know, a lot of kids in the adoptive and foster care system struggle with mental health, probably the most out of other kids, because, you know, you're dealing with this loss that's so great and you don't know how to process it. And everybody around you is kind of having that air of like, oh, everything's great. And then you're going to have to process that later in life, you know? So in terms of abandonment, a lot of symptoms include things that kind of relate to things, like you said, that relate to sexual orientation, right? One of the things that I noticed about like bisexuality, one of the things is like you tend to overindulge in like alcohol, drugs, or like self-form, different forms of self-harm. That also is a thing with abandonment. And so, like I said earlier, it's like you have to kind of be aware and like, okay, is it because of my orientation? And that's, you know, more prevalent amongst the orientation that I'm with? Or is it like an issue of like I'm adopted and, you know, self-harm, overindulgence and drugs and sex and all that stuff is like an issue that plagues kids that in an adoption system. So where does it lie? Like, that's why I'm very, I'm very much an advocate for like understanding why, like it kind of goes into the mental health aspect of it my sister always says she's like you know I think you just be trying to like put everything on yourself like you look up something and you're like oh like I have this and this and I'm like it's not really like that I'm just a person that believes in understanding the labels and like you know if you have a word for it there's nothing wrong with having that word you know people in the older generation kind of have this belief that like nah it's just we just use like broad words or derogatory slurs like the r word we're just like oh that person is just slow they're they're just dumb that it's like that's not telling me what that person needs what specific needs they need to be met you know and stuff so i'm like yeah that's a great point because what's really important with any disability or with any mental health issue or there's strong overlap between the two a mental health issue can be a disability in and of itself even if the label isn't a slur and isn't used derogatorily (laughs) What I think is most important at the end of the day is what does that person need? What are the access needs? What are the support needs? And that's where the ableism in our society comes in because a lot of people just don't care what those support needs are. Exactly. And you you mentioned um, older generations looking at this in a different light than a lot of younger generations. Courtney and I have talked about how family members, parents, aunts, uncles, uh, grandparents, their generations tended to write off anything that seemed to be closely related to a disability and explain it away. Like we've had family members that will refuse to use mobility aids, even though we can tell that they're struggling. And so the fact that an older person might look at a younger person and say, oh, you're just introverted. That's just the way you are. And not even attempt to dive deeper into that, I think might be part of that same generational concept. It definitely is. Like, it's growing up and seeing that and stuff. Like, it honestly is kind of defeating because, you know, I've had friends who have family and they are disabled and stuff. And they're just like, oh, this is just a bunch of like, you know, nonsense and you're just making up stuff and whatnot. And it's just like, I don't understand how you can't see that. Like, first of all, like, there are so many people with different disabilities, right? And it's going to be different all across the board. The even the spectrum for like the disability in itself is going to be different. Like I got a friend who has chronic pain, not going to be the same as another friend who has chronic pain and stuff. Like one can work, one can't. People don't understand that. They think like, oh, chronic pain, like if that person's working, you could work. And it's like, that's not how that works, you know? And that's how I kind of 
look at myself because I'm struggling with a bunch of things. Like I've been diagnosed with like anxiety and depression, you know, anxiety I've had all my life. It was very debilitating even at some points and stuff. Sometimes it kind of goes away and I'm fine. But then like sometimes it's like really, really bad. It'll come out of nowhere. And people are like, what triggered it? And I'm like, nothing. Like it's just panic disorder. It just happens, you know? And like, it's hard to explain to people. And so like, there are other things that I feel like I don't have a term for that I might have an ideal about, but like talking to people who aren't deep into the mental health disability faces, they kind of are just like, don't worry about it. If it affects your job and stuff like that, like just, I don't know, keep keep working. Like, you know, <laughs> and so it's like, if I keep quitting these jobs because something in me is not, it's not even about being satisfied. I just physically, it's kind of like a burnout, right? Like a really, really bad burnout. I can't do it anymore. I'm on the on the brink. And so like, I noticed that and I'm trying to get help for it. But everybody else is just like, nah, like everybody wants to quit their job. Everybody wants to, you know, not work. And I'm like, but for me, it's so strong that I think it's an issue and I need to get help for it. And they're just like, nah. (laughs) That's another thing we talk about a lot because especially as a child, if you are a child who has any sort of disability, neurodivergence, mental health issue, it's very difficult to know that you have a different set of needs from everyone else because you hear the way people talk about things and you just assume that other people are feeling the same way you do. And and even to a certain extent, like chronic pain too. Like if you're a kid who has chronic pain, like people will be like, oh, it's growing pains. Everyone gets those. And so you just sort of normalize it in your head. Like, well, I guess everyone has this. So if everyone feels the way I do and they can do this, then surely it's a moral failing on my part if I cannot. And so that's like such a big part of learning how to understand yourself as an adult (laughs) and like as as a disabled adult, as an adult with mental health issues, especially if they trace back to your childhood, because then you have to start connecting the dots and like, wait a minute, that wasn't actually normal. Exactly. So now that I know that that wasn't normal, what do I do with this information? Exactly. And that kind of goes hand in hand with like me getting diagnosed with like ADHD. It was just recently, like it was the beginning of last month, it was September, and I had went to a psychiatrist and you know it was like one meeting and he like I kept droning on and on and on and like I mean obviously now I know it's kind of like an ADHD thing but um I guess like I used to attribute it to like I'm very much a a loner like an introvert it's kind of going back into what we said like people just be like oh it's just you being an introvert so you know socially you're just gonna keep you know talking 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 and I'm like okay cool like yeah that makes sense because I'm always by myself you know and I just kind of take over the conversation because like sometimes socially I'm not thinking like, okay, it's time to like let other people talk type thing, you know? And so I just attributed it to that. And now I'm like, it makes sense because I did assume that I had ADHD at one point, but then I was like, I can't self-diagnose, can't do it. Uh. You know, that's disrespectful, (laughs) you know? Because I've seen so many people um, on my Facebook, they have these discussions about self-diagnosing and it's like, you can't do that because, you know, it's harmful and people just are faking stuff. And I'm like, I get that because I've seen people fake stuff to get a attention and stuff like that. But I'm like, my thing was, you're going to have to self-diagnose at some point, right? Because like you said, when I was younger, I kind of knew I had something. I didn't know what. It was very bad. My anxiety was the first mental health that like I was very aware of. 
I don't even know how to explain it. It sounds insane. Like we used to drive down this road, um, down Kedzie by where my house is. And I don't know if it was because it felt like claustrophobic or what, but like, I always had this like feeling like I was like, I got to get out of here. Right. Like I was dang near ready to just undo my seatbelt and just open the door and like get out of the car, like a moving car. And so I was like, this isn't normal. Right. Like I don't, I don't got a word for it, but it's not normal. Why I'm so like heightened and on edge all the time. But I was like, okay, cool, whatever. Just kind of like wrote it out for years and stuff like that. And then I would like explained it to my, um, I think therapists at the time. And they were like, yeah, you have panic disorder. I was like, oh, that makes sense. You know, like, <laughs> you know, but I'm like, I had to think about it. I had to be like, I had to self-diagnose a little, right? I had to be like, something's wrong. That's the first thing of like a self-diagnosis. Like you have to say something's wrong so you can get that help. Because if you don't, you don't know anything's wrong, like we said about the older generation you could just go on in life and just be like nothing's wrong i'm not especially like with certain things where it's like narcissism and stuff like that narcissists like they probably don't know because they don't know the signs they don't know the symptoms and stuff and they are inadvertently might be hurting somebody else same with like bpd or like you know personality disorders and stuff like that yeah like the highly stigmatized like cluster b like that that are also used very ableistically like people will just be like oh don't trust a narcissist even though it's like a narcissist could be a perfectly lovely person. Exactly. And it's like, we don't know because we don't have that knowledge of it because with things in terms of like disability and just mental health in general, like everybody's just like, don't talk about it until we want to put a, I don't know how to phrase it. Because there's a thing now with, like I said, narcissism. It's kind of like ADHD, bipolar. I noticed that neurotypical people or people who don't have mental illnesses, they tend to um, take a word and then kind of shift the word's meaning into something just for them. Yeah. There are definitely like colloquial uses of diagnoses. I, for example, like one of my first mental health things that a doctor ever kind of floated in my direction was OCD. And like, that's one where a lot of people will use OCD as like, oh, I just like to be very tidy or I'm very particular about where, what I want things. But folks who have been diagnosed with OCD know that that's not what that is in the clinical setting. And that's kind of a constant battle because people have different ideas about how harmful that is or is not that there's sort of a diagnostic use of a word and then a colloquial use of a word. And some of it is like, sometimes it's meant to be very harmless. Someone isn't trying to be ableist if they use one of those colloquial uses, but especially the more stigmatized disorders, the ones that people know even less about, often say like, this is really, really harmful because now it's further stigmatizing it. People are, you know, getting less access to information by this sort of colloquial use of this term. And our our media compounds that a lot, too, because there have been a lot of tropey, like, genius investigator characters that all have OCD traits. There are a lot of villains that are portrayed as narcissistic or, or things like that that just further the stereotypes. 
Exactly. And that's why it's definitely important to like, you know, know what these things are. And I feel like um, having characters where even like the term is used and stuff so that the person can know like, oh, this is like, you know, not the whole character because sometimes your character, you know, traits can be different from your symptoms and stuff like that. But sometimes they can be like the same thing because, you know, I always talk about how like with BPD, right? And I don't know if I have it. I just, I feel like I have like certain symptoms of it, but I'm not going to say I have it, but I relate to a lot of things that you know the BPD community like says and stuff because a big part of BPD is abandonment you know I'm just aware of it I think with like BPD it's definitely got a stigma to it I think a lot of people don't know what it is because like I try to explain certain things to my mom and stuff like that and then she's like she doesn't get it I think they look for like the word in the term like anxiety you already know what that is borderline is kind of harder because it's like what does that mean borderline of what you know and like people have that that conversation a lot and stuff and it's like no it's it's more like I got abandoned in some way shape or form and I'm trying to like make sure that this person doesn't leave me type thing you know and so I'm trying to like get my family to understand that in the context of like we said earlier being adopted you know even with that diagnosis and stuff and like I said I don't want to like say I have it but it is is very like I was saying it's integral to like my experiences because like yeah I I have those moments where I'm like constantly asking the person like do you love me do you love me do you love me do you it gets annoying like in in my mind I'm like okay we got to stop that but I can't those things kind of are the symptoms of like me thinking like hey I might have BPD but even if I don't get the diagnosis or whatever it's just good to know like this is something that I do and if it's something different then that's cool with me you know because I did tell my the psychiatrist I saw and he was like I think you have like reactive no is it like react rad it's reactive attachment disorder and I'm like okay that's cool too you know I'm not gonna argue and be like no I have BPD I'm open to different things and as long as you're hearing me and thinking steps ahead of like maybe you have this and maybe you have that that's cool you know it might not be perfect but something to explain like even the smallest traits or whatever could be kind of helpful well self-diagnosis i find is very often the first step to a real diagnosis which in in my opinion also back to one of our previous points the diagnosis is not the point. The support and the access needs are the point. And depending on what diagnosis we're talking about, sometimes you need a diagnosis, especially if it's something like medication, prescriptions, like that is the first step to getting that type of support uh, for things of that nature. And well, first of all, I, I know from other friends of mine that BPD is like very often misdiagnosed and a lot of people tend to go through several different other diagnoses before they land on BPD. <laughs> so sometimes like just getting that diagnosis is also a journey of finding what you can relate to in the BPD community and then sort of self-advocating in the clinical setting. But even if that's not what the final answer is, sometimes posing the question or learning what traits you can, you know, identify with and see in yourself, sometimes that helps give you language also to even speak to a doctor, to a therapist or whomever is in your support structure to say like, hey, I'm learning this. I kind of relate to this. 
what do you make of that? Because otherwise, again, sometimes it's hard to suss out like what is normal, what is not normal. And if you have other other diagnoses under your belt, so even something as, as broad as uh, like anxiety, it's like, is, is this from anxiety? Or is this is this different or new or evolved from anxiety? So I think it helps to have a lot of just like tools and a lot of vocabulary in your arsenal to be able to go on this journey. Because I find that uh, doctors can almost be as bad as like parents and family in older generations for like, oh, dismissing things like, oh, that's normal. And if you don't explain something in exactly the right way, they aren't going to look into it. And of course, there are some doctors that are great. I'm not saying every doctor is terrible and dismissive, but a lot of them certainly are. And there are other things that play into that as well. You know, women are less likely to be believed. Uh, black people are less likely to be believed any any racialized person. And so there are definitely intersections there as well in the clinical setting. Definitely is. And, you know, I, like I just learned that it's very hard for black women to get diagnosed with ADHD. And I'm like, that's crazy. Because like, I understand for women, it's harder because it looks different than in men. But it's just like to think that, you know, also on the stigma of like black women, you know, they don't believe anything we say. We go in and we're like, I feel like, you know, something's wrong. They're like, you're lying. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, so it's like that on top of like us not being like a lot of our actions and stuff being written off as like, oh, that's just how black people act, you know, and stuff. It's not like, you know, her tapping her nails like this or whatever. It's not a ADHD trait. It's just like, that's just what they do. They just tap their nails because they have long nails. And it's like, no. Like, you know, I didn't even know that because I was like, I was like, wait, like tapping your nails and like, you know, doing all those little things is stimming. And like, they were like, yeah, it's it's going to look different for black people or just in general, like, it's going to look different for everybody. But with us, because, you know, we have like some of us get long nails and stuff like that. And then like, you know, whatever else you have on you and stuff like that. I can't think of the exact ones, but I was like so in shock because they listed a bunch of them. I was like, wow, a lot of us might actually have ADHD. That's crazy. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, but it's kind of cool. Like, because now we have those, you know, things to tell you like, hey, yeah, this is like, uh, you know, that. And, you know, it's good to have that like terminology because, you know, it's good because people are kind of receptive to it. Like, oh, that's like ADHD thing or this is an autistic thing. Like, OK, like I'm considering it, like I'm thinking about it, like, you know, and I think that's where the whole self-diagnosis thing gets like a bad rep, especially on like TikTok and stuff, where sometimes you can tell when things are just kind of like for views and stuff like that. But then some things are trying to be like informative. And then people are like, well, maybe I do have like this thing and stuff. And then people kind of take it as like, no everybody wants to be autistic and everybody wants to have ADHD and it's like I don't think anybody wants that stuff you know what I'm saying like it's not fun to have you know <laughs> like it kind of is very it it hurts because like for me when I was working in like Olive Garden my ADHD stuff really kicked in the high gear like the memory loss it kicked in the high gear so bad like I would be at the bar and then next thing you know I'm like I'm walking out to go get something and I'm clearly like yes I need ice and then I'm like I walk out a couple paces and then next thing I know I'll stop I'm like what what, what did I you know and I'm like it's gone <laughs> yes it's just it's gone into the into the nether sphere like I'm just like that's scary like because you know my family always pushes it off as like you know oh like you're just young and you're just forgetful or you know my sister would sometimes say like you know you you have selective memory you you remember what you want to remember I'm like that's not true because if it's something even small like 
oh, go pick up that book right there that I like. I could forget it. So it's not selective, you know, like like the way she said it before is just so condescending, I guess. It kind of hurt because it's like, I think there's something going on and I'm kind of scared because what if I have like early onset Alzheimer's or something? Like, I don't know because I would look it up and then I'm like, but if I look it up, then she's right because I'm just like looking up stuff and like, I'm just a hypochondriac, like she said, you know? And it's like, okay, but having those things and knowing the symptoms of like ADHD and like, you know, not just what everybody thinks ADHD is, which is like, oh, I'm running like the flash. I'm just running all over the place and I'm just, you know, talking, you know, 80 miles per hour type thing. Like, and that's so funny because... When my mom was um, babysitting for my sister's friends, uh, kids, we knew that one of them had autism. So like they they already knew that. So it was like, cool, whatever. And then we had the little boy and he, he kind of had like the stereotypical symptoms of like ADHD. And so, but then he also had stuff where he would like, like bang his head on the table and stuff. And he just wouldn't feel it and stuff. And I was like, this is, it's giving ADHD. Right. And like, <laughs> I felt bad. Cause I'm like, yeah, him running around, but like, he's a little boy, you, you know, people are usually like, oh, don't just, don't just put that on them and stuff like that or whatever. But I'm like looking at him and I'm thinking about like, like all the things that I do know at that time. And I'm like, it looks like ADHD. And so I like, I told my family and stuff and it was like, yeah, I don't, I don't really know and stuff. And then come to find out maybe like a year later or something, he got diagnosed with ADHD. I was like, it's so funny because I'm like looking at it now with my diagnosis last last month. I'm like, wow, real recognizes real because we both have yes. ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I'm like, I didn't, I wasn't, I don't really know too much about the autism scene and stuff like that. Like, so I wasn't, I wouldn't have been able to diagnose uh, his sister, but I was like, I definitely know he got ADHD. <laughs> so it was hilarious. Yeah. And the the more you learn to, and I, I think this, an unfortunate side effect of this is that it sort of reconfirms the people who are in the very ignorant camp of like, well, it's a social contagion. Everyone wants to have autism. Everyone wants to have ADHD. So more people are self-diagnosing and they don't actually have this thing. It's way more rare than you think. But when you actually learn what the like neurodivergent traits are, once you learn how they manifest in your own body, once you view how they manifest in other people's bodies, you do start to get good at picking those traits out in other people. <laughs> this actually happened to me really recently. Um, I had a doctor, uh, my, my pain doctor actually uh, recommended that I take up Tai Chi. And I was like, that's an interesting idea because with my dance background, I bet I'm really good at it or I would be good at it. And it would be something that's low impact enough on my joints that I could do it more regularly than a lot of other exercises. And so the the two things I was concerned about, though, first of all, Tai Chi, I've seen a lot of like middle-aged white gym bros lately who have like just gotten turned on to Tai Chi and they use it as like, this is a great supplement to your bodybuilding on break days. And it's like, I am 1000% not going to learn Tai Chi from a white gym bro, first of all. So I have to find, you know, someone who has some connection to the culture that I, that I trust. Cause I also, I love history. I love learning about other cultures too. So it's like, I don't only want want to learn the art and the exercise. I also want to learn the history. I want to learn the culture. So I'd like to find someone who can do that for me. But also, 
I'm still super immunocompromised and I'm not going to be in like a closed indoor space with a huge group of people. So where am I going to find a class that I feel comfortable going to, even if I put my mask on? And I got really, really lucky because, and this was wild to me. I was just researching like things in my area. I found a Tai Chi master, Chen Huixian, who is literally like the 20th generation descendant of the people who invented Chi- like Tai Chi. She was born in Chen Village, which is named after her family because her family invented Tai Chi. And, and she's, she's like the only descendant of the Chen family who is like, regularly teaching classes at the same place in the United States. And I was like, wow, can't get any closer to the culture than that. That's clearly going to be my teacher. And she teaches outside in the park. So I'm like, oh, brilliant. So I, I've been doing Tai Chi and I'm a- I actually am, I think, pretty good at it <laughs> and I enjoy it. And so I'm going out into the park and I'm doing my Tai Chi. But I came home one day after the first day of Tai Chi and I was like, hey, Royce, I think I, I think there's a classmate that I was talking to that is also autistic. And I was like, I'm seeing it in everyone now. Every like every like new person I meet or every new group of people, I'm like, I'm I'm able to pick out the autistic people. But I'm like, I'm I'm clearly not gonna say anything. This was like just just like a theory in my head that like Royce and I are trying to figure out like what neurodivergence means to us and and you know, not being diagnosed as children and things like that. But I I actually did get my confirmation because now as several months after this first like I think that person is autistic. He he actually did tell me that yesterday, like just casually in conversation, like, oh yeah, you know, I I have autism and so X, Y, and Z. And I was like, I, I knew it. <laughs> As you said, real recognize real. <laughs> Well, to the groups of people out there who are are very dismissive, I mean, we hear this a lot with just broader queer orientations in general, like, oh, you're just trying to be special. And and it's like, no, I don't want to be harassed constantly for you just existing or for mentioning something about my identity. But I I think that in both uh, physical and mental diagnoses, we're starting to realize now, possibly because of all the connections that can be drawn through the internet, that a lot of things that were considered rare are not really that rare. I mean, Courtney, you've your like major diagnoses throughout your life has been EDS, and that's hit the news cycles a few times in recent years where it's starting like we're actually getting numbers of this is how common it actually is. And I I don't know how accurate this is because I didn't dig into it extensively, but I've seen some people say that the neurotypical to neurodivergent ratios are like 80-20, like potentially 20% of the population has some form of neurodivergence. It just may not be like... Like when I was a kid, the kinds of neurodivergence that were actually spoken of, I think, are like one end of that spectrum and that there are a lot of other forms or a lot of other presentations that we're just starting to uncover and be able to recognize. Well, and more heavily researched amongst like young white boys for the most part, which is is really difficult to have that conversation within the queer community as well, because we know that the gender binary is bullshit. (laughs) 
So it's it's still really hard to have conversations like, well, autism in women looks different. So I, I haven't found the correct way to talk about these things yet, especially in in our ASPEC community where we have such a high percentage of non-binary folks. It's like every time I hear these like clinical assessments of like male versus female neurodivergence, like I want more research into gender expansiveness on top of neurodivergence because I don't have the answers for how to talk about this. I can only say like, well, this is what the medical professionals say. And as a queer person, I know that's reductive. Definitely. Like it kind of shoots you in the foot because it's like, yeah, you you just kind of backtrack. Like, you know, you are you're like, yeah, man and woman. Then you're just like, we know non-binary people exist and stuff, but, you know, they aren't going to put it in the studies and stuff. Because, like, I feel like they just kind of look at it like that's too much extra stuff. Like, why are you doing all this extra stuff? You know, and it's like, no, like it's important. So, like, you know, even like the distinction between a non-binary person and like a gender fluid person and like, you know, it's just such a broad spectrum just like you know mental health and disability so it's like it should be treated as such the same way you know there's also a, a distinction that I think people are often somewhat uncomfortable to talk about where there, there's more than one manifestation of gender. Like there's actual your actual gender identity. There's the, the person who you are. And then there's the stuff that gets projected onto you by the people around you. And some really like early childhood behavioral traits are sort of conditioned into you by the environment that you grow up in. And that is very much situated around how people perceive you or how people treat you and not necessarily who you are as a person. That is facts. Even those things too, like neurodivergent people are going to view, you know, correct social behavior, quote, correct, like differently. And whether it's just a sort of like it goes over my head or whether it's like I know what social norm is, but that's ridiculous. So I'm not going to adhere to it. (laughs) Uh, Wherever you are on the spectrum of that, like there's also those things. So like neurodivergence is going to change what those conditioned behaviors are, or if there are any. And, And I've read so many studies that do look into gender and autism specifically, but some that are a little more broadly neurodivergent, where like neurodivergent people do seem to have a higher likelihood of being queer or not adhering to their gender assigned at birth. And it's like, I find that really fascinating because uh, there there are so many thought experiments you can do with that. Like, is this just even further proof that gender is all just a social construct? <laughs> like, and the people who don't care about the social constructs uh, <laughs> more often than not are the ones who are bucking them more often, you know? And it reminds me of, I believe it was the, it was the Down Syndrome group. I believe it, they had like a social media presence and they I think it was like the drag queens were like reading to them or something. And then um people were like, that's so like horrible. Like, why are you, why are you pushing that onto like people with Down Syndrome and stuff like that? And so like that at the time made me think like when, like you said that people who are um neurodivergent tend to be more like on the queer spectrum. And it's like, they don't want us to have that autonomy. Like, they think like excuse the language but this is how they like speak but it's like you're slow you can't you can't think past like you know sexuality you can't think about that kind of stuff like you you're you're dealing with all these disabilities and mental health things or whatever like you can't possibly know what your sexuality is i can tell you that though like you can't interact with this group of people because like that's just you know they're trying to throw propaganda at you you know so it's like yeah yeah that was crazy 
it's it's so infantilizing and it's it's where the super fun intersection of ableism and queerphobia meets <laughs> because um you know we're we're in the Kansas City area so we sort of have like one foot on either side of Kansas and Missouri so we watch both politics very carefully but Missouri specifically was you know coming out trying to say like a diagnosis of autism is going to prevent you from being able to access gender affirming care and it's it's like why? Because they're saying like, oh, well, you know, this person, I, I want to take their autonomy away because they don't know what's best for them. So I want to protect them. But at the end of the day, now you're still once again insinuating that queerness is something you're protecting people from. It's this dangerous thing that we can't let them get involved in. Exactly. And I'm like, where's the energy when it comes to actually funding like certain, you know, groups and stuff and disabilities and giving the money and like, you know, helping like even adopted kids like you're just worried about what they can and can't do. And they're so inept that they can't, you know, make decisions on their own and stuff like that. But it's like if you want to put money towards something or you want to patronize people, like put your money where your mouth is, you know, like just give us give us the you know resources that we need for the important things, you know. And then also something that Rory said here earlier about like, you know, gender and being in certain environments and stuff. It's so funny because I have a story and I always tell people when I was um growing up, uh, I was in a foster care system. My favorite character, if you see her in the background, Rose Wilson, she's literally, that's the same name as the lady that I was in foster care with. It's so wild to me. Like my favorite character. Oh, really? Yeah. I told my mom, like, yeah, my favorite character is Rose Wilson. She was like, that's your foster parent's name. And I was like, oh my God, that's so weird. Wow. <laughs> But it gets worse. Um, so basically when I was in the um foster care system or whatever, she used to dress me up like a boy. Um, now that would be cool with me, whatever, if she didn't dress my sister up like a girl like a girl. Oh. Simply because my sister is of lighter complexion. Ooh. So yeah, when Royce was saying that like environment with gender and then also like being in a foster care system, you really could just get put in some any random person's house. They could do what they want with you, you know, like. I kind of, you know, grew out of the binary thing. So I don't, I kind of laugh about it now, but it's just like in the black community, obviously, like we kind of attribute dark skin to man, light skin to woman. So it's like that kind of hurt growing up and stuff. So it's like my sister's better than me. Da, da, da. When I got to my family now, they didn't do anything like that. In fact, they, my dad used to always take me places and then leave my sister at home. It's like, it wasn't anything like malicious. He just, you know, I was a younger. So, you know, they, always attached to the younger kids more and stuff and i wish that that didn't happen but you know i think that my family was good on recorrecting those things and you know they were always trying to look out for me and like you know grow my hair out and make sure that you know like present it as a girl but then also you know later down the line if that wasn't wh who i am and stuff like you know they are more accepted now and stuff like that so i just feel like it's different because gender on the spectrum of like race even like those intersections are crazy because like if you're you know born um female and then you identify with a man or being like male or male pronouns 
people are going to question that. Like, is it because like they're dark skinned? Is it because they grew up around men? Or is it because they grew up around lesbians? Like, what is it? You know? And so it's an interesting thing, you know? And so like that story will kind of always stick with me because like it was just, it was based in colorism. And I'm like, you know, I didn't get to choose or anything. It's not like I was like, oh, I want to be a little boy or whatever and stuff. And that even kind of went over into like my childhood. Like me and my sister, we always be like, you know, when you watch TV with your siblings and stuff and you're like, oh, I'm that character. I'm that character and stuff like that. I always try to like always align with the female characters, probably because even as a kid, I'm like, you could probably feel those things too, where it's like this person wants me to be this thing, but you don't understand why, you know, like I didn't understand that she only dressed me up as a boy for colorist reasons. But now I'm aware of it and I'm just like, what was the reason? Yeah, you know, like, I don't know. It's just when it's in connection with colorism, I think it's just more like that's why I get flabbergasted by the situation because it's like not like you let me pick out my clothes and was like, you pick out what clothes you want. You just were like, oh, dark skin, short hair, boy. Yeah, I mean, th- those are all important things to consider with like environment because that that's incredibly hostile. And even if, you know, those clothes in that presentation, even if that's something that, you know, you would like or be okay with, if you know that you are being treated differently than everyone else, there's that's always going to sit wrong at least a little bit. It's it's very complicated. Ugh. It definitely is. Yeah, with with the with foster system as well, because this this is something that I've I've tried to do as much. Just like I don't want to say research. I guess it is research, but it's more of learning of other firsthand experiences and people who have been through the system, and not only listening to people who are or have been foster parents. You know, because I I feel like a lot of people think that the ultimate goal of the foster care system is to get adopted. And that's also not true for a lot of kids. In fact, a lot of kids in the foster care system do have families. And the goal at the end of the day should be to get them back to their families in the safe environment where they belong once whatever needs to be sorted out and corrected has been. And from what I understand from from firsthand experiences I've been learning about, a lot of foster parents don't really respect that or sort of see themselves as a partner in doing what is truly best for the child at the end of the day. And and one thing that I sort of just like opened my eyes in a way that I hadn't had them open before was I kind of found myself on like adoptee TikTok a couple years ago. If if you find like a specific hole of TikTok where you're getting a lot of videos on the same topic, you can learn a lot really, really fast. <laughs> and one thing that was sort of stated was that because you, you also, I, at least in the history of the internet, even back to like early YouTube, there would be all these videos of like, oh, for Christmas, I'm going to adopt my foster child. And there'll be this big like emotional video where everyone's crying and you have like the adoption paperwork in a box and it's this big reveal and, and everyone's like trained to say like, this is a very feel good thing. And it might be for that particular family in that particular situation. But I think it's given a lot of people the perception that adoption is 
always a very good, happy, emotional thing. And it's positive for everyone involved. And that is so not the case. But I I saw a someone who was adopted and then became a foster parent. So had sort of both sides <laughs> of this equation perspective wise. And she was saying that she's learned and she's decided over the years that she would never adopt a child before a certain age if their parents were still alive. She was like, I I would wait until I felt like that child was old enough to truly understand what adoption means (laughs) and to be able to consent to my adopting them. And I was like, Whoa, because because when when it comes to the foster care system, I'm sure you can tell me far better than I could tell our listeners. But it seems like there is a lot of autonomy that is taken away from children in the foster care system. And so that was sort of the first time I had someone use the word consent. And of course, once you use that word, it makes all the sense in the world to me. Like, yes, where is the consent in this system? That is a way that I haven't seen that present. Presented yet? Absolutely. Um, that all of that. I'm trying to process, but yeah, like a lot of people, I feel like that's why they want to adopt the like the younger kids because, like you said, there's no consent there. Like you, it's a baby; they don't know what's going on and stuff like that. Whereas the kids who are older and stuff and have seen a lot of different things and stuff like that, they're kind of deemed as like disposable because it's like, okay, you know what's going on. You clearly don't like it, so you might have a reaction and a behavior that's gonna go against what I want. I want a perfect child. I want a child that's gonna, you know, act like a, a biological child, you know? And so like even that in itself is something that we don't talk about or think about. And so like, yeah, I think that a lot of the times people have these conversations about adoption being a form of slavery, like child slavery and stuff. And I think that that's like a good thing, like that's starting to come out of this and stuff, because it is a form of that. Like, it's just like, okay, let me throw some money at this. And then I'm gonna buy a child. And you don't think about the ramifications of the things that that child's going to go through, you know, things that that child's going to feel emotionally. My mom and my family took classes for, you know, me and my sister so that we can get adopted and stuff. But I don't think those classes really even help the kids that are you know, in that system, because it teaches you like, hey, you know, like, don't leave any, you know, plugs undone, or don't do this and stuff like that. But when it comes down to like, how's that kid going to feel when they get older, knowing that they're adopted? What are you going to do to help that experience? Because that's a form of trauma, like you got abandoned, you lost somebody, you know, and it's just like, it, it's kind of weird how adoptive parents act. And they're just like, why are you acting like this? Like, what do you what do you gotta what do you have to be sad about? What's your struggle? Like you got adopted. That's great, right? Like that's that's the end goal, right? Like be grateful. <laughs> exactly. And it's just like I hate talking to my family about like adoption because they they really just throw it off and they're just like I don't know what you got to complain about. You have a nice house. You have, you know, this and that. And I'm like, I acknowledge that. I'm grateful. Cause like, even now looking at it, I was talking to my mom the other day. I'm like, if something, you know, happens or whatever, I, I get the house that, you know, I'm living in and stuff like that. That's great. But, you know, even that where there are great things that come of, you know, being adopted and having resources and a different family and stuff, there's always going to be the bad too. Like my mom gave me up. She just, she couldn't take care of me. Every sibling I had got put into foster care. 
some of my siblings have died and stuff like that. And I have to wonder, is it because our mom put us in foster care? And that's a big thing too. Adopted kids have to think, would things be different if I wasn't in foster care? The way we process trauma is going to be different than other people. Because there's a form of like, I don't want to say survivor's grief, but like, it's just a form of grief where it's like, life could have been different if I stayed with my mom. My brother would be alive. My sister would be alive. Maybe, or maybe I would be dead. Who knows? Like, you know, but it's just like, you kind of grieve for that thing that never happened. And people don't, you know, when these discussions of the adoption happen, it's just like, you know, at least you got a family. And it's like, no, because the family doesn't understand you. You know, you try to connect with your biological family. I'm telling you, like, I can't even make a connection with my own sibling, right? It's hard because everybody's like, oh, well, like, y'all older now, y'all can connect. I don't know them. <laughs> You know, and it's like that hurts because it's like I really want to, you know, reach out to my brother. He's also like me. We're introverts. So if we get together, it's cool. We not like, you know, you haven't talked to me in a while or nothing like that. Like, you know, but like me and him are cool. And then I got another brother. He's in prison. He's going to get out, I think, this month. And I'm trying to like do as much as I can for him in a sense of, you know, as much as I am like allowed to do, you know, just like being there for him, trying to understand, you know, and be receptive and try to help where I can and stuff. Because I look at it like this. I got adopted. Me and my sister, we got adopted. Uh, my brothers, they didn't get adopted. They were in the foster care system. And even that's different, you know, because like when you're adopted, it's a different experience than being in the foster care all your life, you know, because once you kind of get cut off, like you don't get things because you're not related to the family. You you don't have that in paper and writing. And so all of my brothers kind of have different life paths. Some of them like went down the wrong path. Some of them went down like okay paths and stuff like that. But I'm thinking like, would it, would it be different if they got adopted? Would it be different if they we stay with our mom? Would it be worse? And so, you know, I, I definitely also think a lot about the males in the adoption system or like the foster care system. Because I have a friend right now. His name is uh, Lucian. And he is, you know, he's just like aged out of the system and stuff. So he was given um, a place to stay for a while. But once you're 18, they kind of like, you got to go, you know. Bye. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> right. I'm like, wow, that's useful, you know. And so I'm always trying to be there for him, even though, you know, technically when we were talking, he was a minor and stuff. And like, I remember talking to my friends and it would be like, why are you talking to him? Like, he's, he's a kid. And I'm like, to you, it looks like something that's not. But for me, it's like a person in foster care is always going to be of my like utmost priority. Right. Because I understand what it looks like. You know, my brothers went through that. I don't want anybody, especially a young boy, to feel like he doesn't have anybody, you know, like. You can always talk to me about your feelings if you need to talk about the foster care system, if you feel like you're struggling in life or whatever. I'm always there. I can't give you money. I can't, you know, give you the resources you need. But if you need to talk to me, I feel like I'm always an open book for like foster care and people in the adoption system because like they kind of gravitate towards me. So I'm like, I just want to be there for somebody, you know, like I wish people were there for my brothers and for us. I want to be that for a lot of people. And they he just didn't understand. I, I I didn't fault him because like, you know, you've never been in the, the system. So it's like you you wouldn't get it, but it's it's okay. Like it's not like a bad thing, you know, it's just that's just how it is sometimes. It kind of looks weird, but it's like when you've seen people be abandoned like that, you just want to bring them in and stuff, you know. So 
Yeah, I it very different situation, but I that that is something when you said um that you you don't know your siblings and like you you can get to know them as an adult but you didn't grow up in the same environment with them. That that really is something because I when I was like I was like 10 or 11, like double digit child, like just just about on the verge of of teenagedom and like my father had like just gotten out of jail and he was like just about to move all the way across the country and just about to like up and leave and I'd never see him again but he like sat me down and like handed me two photos of two people I'd never seen before and he's like this is your older brother and your older sister I never told you that they exist but they've known about you since the day you were born and they've seen pictures of you and they love you and I mean, he was also like very much lying and he's like, your mother didn't want you to know about your siblings, which was was not true. That, that was a lie. <laughs> but like he told me this at, at this age and I was like, what what am I supposed to do with this information? Like I, I have siblings that I never knew about. What? And and like at that point, he like gave me their phone numbers and we'd start like talking on the phone because they also lived like all the way across the country. And for a while, when we were all still kids, even though they were older than me, like we were hitting it off a little bit and we were getting to know each other. And I was like, wow, I'm going to have a real like sibling relationship with them. But I haven't spoken to either of them in 15 years. (laughs) And I'll probably never speak to either of them ever again. And it's not because we have any bad blood or anything. It's just that we don't actually really know each other. And the only thing we really have in common is the fact that like our dad left all of us. So, and there's only so much bonding you can do over that. Like there's definitely a little bit at the beginning where we can like, you know, vent to each other and be like, yeah, what, what a piece of shit. But then like after that, it's like, what, what else is there? It's, it's kind of, it's kind of forced, you know? Yeah, definitely. Like my siblings love y'all, obviously, you know, some of them I have things in common with. We all like anime and stuff like that. Might like the same music. Who knows? You know, like my brother, um, who's getting out soon. I know he likes anime. So I used to like send him, um, books and stuff like, you know, different mangas and stuff. Cause I'm like, okay, whatever books you want, like, just let me know. I'll try to, you know, send them in there. Cause I want you to have something to do. And, you know, when he gets out, I plan to, you know, might not happen. Who knows? But like, I plan to like take him to different conventions and stuff with me and my friends and stuff just to keep him like on the right path hopefully like so he doesn't feel like you know there's nothing I could do outside like you know I got to go back to the same thing and stuff like that like I want you to feel like you know you got somebody who knows about this stuff who can get you in spaces and stuff or whatever then just ask me we could go we could hang out whenever you want but like I just feel like that's something that you need to have even if it doesn't bring us closer or if it does that's great but it's just like when people ignore you especially fresh out of like prison and stuff or just you know and they treat you like you know you're an ex-con there's nothing more to you and stuff it's just it kind of goes into like the you know adopted thing and stuff like it's just like you feel a different type of abandonment all over again because nobody really wants to put into you you know and so that kind of goes into like my belief of like people in the foster care system and the adoption system I always say it sounds extremist I guess I don't know but I always say that we should get like free therapy for life like I don't know, but like I think that I think everyone you know, should have free therapy for life. Let's definitely. let's socialize therapy. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Because I'm like, the the things you deal with, whether it's work related, you know, your love life, just in general, I feel like definitely people could definitely benefit from like therapy and stuff. And I just feel like, you know, like adopted kids get therapy and stuff like that when you're coming up. But it's usually like to make sure that, you know, nothing's happening in the like foster care system or the adoptive home. And then once everything's good, they're like, oh, yep, you don't need anything anymore. Like you're good. Like, and I'm just like, we have to deal with abandonment. And I think it gets worse when you're an adult because you're like all these feelings of like inadequacy and you know like what everybody deals with but it's kind of like on a hundred because it's like my mom didn't even want me like how can I be anything in this world or whatever where my parents didn't want me I can't make no connections with anybody you know that's where I'm kind of at where it's like I can't even connect with my siblings but I want to go to art school and connect with people and network but it's like you can't even connect with your family you know and that kind of hurts because it's like you think about stuff like that and so it's like I wish there was a way to kind of like reintroduce people into the world after you've dealt with like the foster care system and like adoption and stuff like give them the benefits like understanding how they feel because I see a lot of times like on social media and stuff people are always like yeah this person is like they they don't care about anybody else they just act in a way where it's like not understanding of other people's feelings and stuff and I'm like I wonder if that's something that like adopted kids do because we've been abandoned so like I'm gonna act in a way that an abandoned person will act you know I'm gonna ghost you I'm gonna not talk to people I'm gonna you know cling to maybe one person and that's it you know so it's like you gotta learn how to deal with those things obviously but I feel like you need the resources you definitely need the resources when you can't even process those things growing up and then you're an adult and now you're just like yeah I got abandonment issues I'm not gonna do anything about it though like you know (laughs) so yeah do you personally consider the adoption and foster care systems to be disabling systems? Absolutely. Like, they don't help, you know? And like, what you had said earlier about how they should be put in place to help kids reunite with their families and stuff, I think that that should be the main goal. Because when you have all these extra steps, you know, you don't speak about the adoption system highly in society. We don't have any good representation. You know, every time I hear about adoption, it's literally like, you're adopted on TV. And it's just like, what is, what's, okay, so what's the plot? What's, you know, are they going to be like, I don't need to be biological. Like, I'm fine with being adopted. There's nothing. They're just like, you're adopted. That's an insult, you know? And so it's like, I think that it definitely is disabling because you need education on it. You know, even outside of the adopted parents learning about stuff, we just as a community and as a society just need to know about adopted people and foster kids and stuff and just how to just interact with them, how to make them not feel like being adopted or foster care is like shameful. Like, because my family, they they always ask me like, why do you tell people you're adopted? I'm like, why not? Like, what's the... I don't know. Like, I don't see it as a bad thing. I guess I I could see people weaponizing it, but I don't see it as a bad thing. You know, I just think that the way that the system is set up, it definitely doesn't allow for you to like grow as a person. Like, it just kind of stunts you and then it just throws you into the world, like the cold world and stuff. And it doesn't like, obviously you shouldn't be coddled and stuff, but just the way that they interact with like foster kids and adopted kids and just kind of 
act like your existence doesn't matter after a certain point, you know, after your safety or whatever is kind of solidified. Like they don't consider the emotional and mental harm that the foster care system can pose and stuff. And that's where it kind of becomes like disabling, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And it it really seems to like, although it's presented to be a very like life-saving thing, something that's about safety. At the end of the day, a lot of it to me just seems to be about control. Because once once a kid turns 18, well, you can't legally control them anymore, so they're on their own. But they, they still might need help and support. There are lots of kids who stay in the home through college or even if they don't go to college they'll stay in the home for a few more years so you you really are kicking someone out in just like a really pivotal time in their life where a lot of support normally is needed because you're in a very transitional period but i i was thinking of this earlier too when you you know likened adoption to slavery in the sense of like i'm paying money and acquiring a child i i think that that's definitely an issue for adoptive parents but it's kind of an issue for the way people view parenthood as a whole cuz there are definitely people who even with their own biological children who just want and need control over them and i i can consider children in general to be like an oppressed class of people. And sometimes people will like squint at me when I say that and be like, no, everyone's been a kid. It's like, but but no, actually think of it. Kids do not have as much autonomy as they usually deserve. And obviously, depending on age, depending on you know, mentality. There are certain things that adults are going to need to help and make the decisions for, but it's, it's less of a partnership. And I'm, I'm partnering with you to do what's in your best interest and more like I'm telling you what's in your best interest. And I mean, people even use like you're childish as an insult. And I always say like, don't say that first of all ever, but don't say it around kids. Like kids hear when adults say to each other, like you're acting like a child, you're acting like a kid. And it's like, what's a kid supposed to do with that? They can't control their age. <laughs> so it's, so much of it is about control. And I think so much of that I control my child mindset is so much about what the, the queer community is fighting for when it comes to things like gender affirming care, when it comes to things like being able to use a child's correct pronouns in schools and things, because all, all of the conservative parents that are trying to, you know, ban the books and my child is not going to be brainwashed or transed or, you know, all those horrible things they say. It's about control. They want to control not only their own kids, but all the kids around their kids <laughs> and all the kids in the entire system. And so when when we look at parenting as controlling another human, there, there are going to be those issues that are just going to get even more exaggerated in systems like foster care and adoption when a child is even more at risk. Absolutely. And yeah, I see a lot of people, again, on social media that like are always talking about how like, oh, like, it's my child. I can I can do whatever I want with them and stuff and, like they're a possession. And I'm like parents rights. <laughs> 
Yeah, like, I just, you know, okay, but it sounds like you're going to, like, mentally mess up your child in some way because just the brain, like, the mentality that you have is already kind of messed up where it's like, I can do whatever I want. And, like, the implications even of that saying in itself just, like, brings about so many different thoughts. Like, okay, you can abuse your child, like, physically, sexually, whatever. Like, that's like, don't say that, you know? Like, it's not about control. It's about being able to... Kind of like guide your children in a way that you, you know, makes them happy, but then also, you know, not makes the parent happy, but just kind of makes them happy because their kid is happy, I would say. You know, like you should be worrying about your child's ultimate end goal of being happy, their happiness. And that reminds me of being like rehabilitated into like, you know, the world after being in the foster care system, because like, I just think that they throw us into the world. But then it's also like, if we don't have those spaces to be able to tell how how we feel and stuff like that we're gonna ultimately like i said before hurt people and just kind of throw our trauma on them and that's kind of how the the foster care system kind of acts as that parent where it's like you're just gonna do what i say you're gonna do it how i say and then you're gonna be okay with it you know you're gonna be happy at the end of the day like it's kind of like the way parents act with queer kids it's like you're gonna be straight because i said you're gonna be straight and you're gonna be okay because you realize that i'm the parent and i control the situation so whatever i say kind of goes or whatever you know that's kind of how the foster care system is it's like you're gonna be okay you know you're gonna be you're gonna be just fine you're not gonna act like a person who just got abandoned you're not gonna act like a person who's been on their own and stuff and dealing with their own emotions and stuff we're gonna ignore that mental health stuff you know the disabilities and stuff you might have because of this like you're just gonna be okay you know so like it definitely you know links up and has very similar traits to even you know biological people and how they you know interact with their kids and it's kind of funny because yeah dcfs and like the adoption and foster care system basically are a parent you know like they are like you said earlier centered around the parents it's not about the kids it's not about the kids consent what they want i see a lot of kids wanting to go back home i see a lot of kids you know dealing with things and stuff like that and you know they don't they just want to sugarcoat everything and just kind of make it easier for the parents so it's like you know this kid is acting up or whatever okay we'll give them therapy so that they stop acting up for you like it's like like i said earlier it's like slavery it's like oh your slave is acting up or whatever we'll just we'll just whip them on the side and stuff like that and then bring them back they'll be fine you know and it's just like it's not how you deal with these things because the therapy is not for the kids it's for the kids behavior in the face of the parent and it's just it's so much stuff to it and you know that's why I like really am concerned for the kids nowadays especially you know me and my mom we foster some kids um a lot of different kids all these kids have different stories and they have different behavioral traits and the reason they act a certain way going to be different all across the board right and two stories that I can remember we had two boys and stuff and they they were great you know they were you know they come into the house and I always ask myself I'm like how do you how are they feeling you know like you know they just going into a new environment they packed up their stuff and now they're in somebody else's house like how does that feel you know even though I know how it feels a little one thing I noticed about um foster kids and adopted kids we are happy to just go into somebody's house randomly we're just like wow like a new place you know and then we don't you know because we're a kid you know we don't think about like the implications of what's about to happen or whatever it's just like 
I'm in a new place. Cool. I get a room. I get whatever and stuff, you know? And so like, I always worry about the kids and I'm like, like if you, I want to do what I do for like my older friends where it's like, if you are feeling bad. If you want to go home or if you, you voice that, you know, be receptive. Tell me like, I get it. I can't really do much, but I can affirm you in that sense of like, I understand how it feels to, you know, maybe feel a certain way, but like, you know, I want to be able to say like, you can say that here, you know, not like with a lot of adopted parents, they get hurt when you say things like, oh, I want my mother or I want, you know, da da da. And they're just like, am I not good enough? <laughs> exactly. It's, it's about them. It's about them and their feelings at the end of the day. I'm like, you know, I remember I had voice that I wanted to like, you know, know about my dad and my mom and stuff like that. And my family literally acted like that. And I was like, I was taken aback. I was like, I don't, okay, I, I, I'll, I'll just let it go. You know, like, um, I won't ask about it anymore because they just felt so offended and mad. And I was just like, that it gives you that mentality of like, don't bring that up. Don't don't do that to me. Don't hurt me. You know, and it's like, you don't think I'm hurting that I just don't know my own family. And so like for me, obviously, I want to try to adopt when I, you know, have kids and stuff like that, because I, I feel like that connection. I know what it's like. I know what to do and I know what not to do in certain situations. So I would be like, you know, if you want to talk to your family or whatever, just let me know. I'll get that. I'll get that started for you. You don't have to go look for them on your own you can just let me know I got you you know whereas a person who wasn't adopted are just like you don't need to do that and it's like it's so jarring I'm telling you like the way they just react to that it's like a trauma that you don't need like why are you being so mean to me about this thing that I had no control over you know it's so heartbreaking. And so that's why with the boys, you know, I, it hurt me because their mom was like, you know, and keep in mind, these boys are like, maybe like five and eight or whatever. And she was like, yeah, I'm not ready to have no kids and stuff like that. And like, and I'm like, I get that. But at the same time, that hurt me because like, you're hurting your kids. And maybe like, if it was a situation where it was like drugs and stuff like that, or like abuse in the house, I get that. It's kind of out of your control. But to just give your children up and to have that as the reason really hurt me because I'm like, these boys are going to have to deal with that for the rest of their life. Like, they're going to recognize like, oh, yeah, I was kind of I was kind of in foster care for a second there. You know, like, why was I in foster care? And then, you know, you have these conversations with people around you and they're like, yeah, your mama didn't want you. Like, she just said she didn't want no kids or like whatever. And it's like, I hate for to think that they have to navigate life even with that thought in their head. I feel like no child should have to feel any type of abandonment. I feel like that's the worst thing to experience. Like, that's your first real trauma. And at such a young age, it's unfair. And then the other story was of a little girl that we had um, took care of. And um, she she had a phone, which is weird in the foster care system, because they usually take any kind of connection you can have with your family. Ooh. <laughs> And just so that you, you know, uh, which is like, I get it why you would have that. But then also I don't. She also had like medical issues and stuff. So like, I kind of get it, but I kind of don't. And so like her grandma would kind of coach her to act a certain way with us and stuff. And like, she would just act, you know, really, really bad. And it got so bad. My mom had to like take her up to the, um, to the offices and stuff like that. She couldn't take care of her and stuff. Cause like she could have somebody in her ear telling her how to act, but then also acting like, oh, I'm the one trying to calm her down. I'm trying to calm her. It's so many different like things in the foster care system. And it's so bad. I was just like, 
hurting for her because it's like, you know, you don't even get to control your own behaviors. You know, she's telling you, oh, act this way so that they can, you know, they can bring you back to me and stuff. And it's like, you're leading this child astray for what? She's already dealing with probably a lot. You know, she has medical issues and stuff like that. She has to take her medicine every day. She doesn't understand the implications that if she doesn't take her medicine, something bad can happen. And you're, you know, just kind of abusing her even more. And it's like, it really is a horrible system. Like, with horrible people, you know? And that's why I think we need more people who understand it, I guess, you know, and just can extend themselves and, um, you know, because even with like the social workers and stuff, they only do it for a paycheck. You could tell because like they, they don't really care about the kids, you know, they they aren't concerned with it. They're like, oh, being a social worker is like one of the highest paying jobs. I'm like, so we don't care about the kids though? <laughs> Oof. Yeah. I, and I feel like the average person just knows so little about this system. They they really do. And so when I was like a kid, like a young, young kid, I have always my entire life been like about experiences. I want to have as many different unique experiences as possible. And that's always been like a, a core value of mine. So even as a kid, when I knew that I liked other kids and for most of my life, I was certain that I was going to be a mother. And so as like a young child, I was like, well, I want the experience of having a biological child. And then I also want the experience of adopting a child. So I'll just have two children so I can have both experiences. And that was obviously like six-year-old Courtney brain. So I didn't know anything about the system at that time. I was just like, yes, let me collect experiences. But then, then when I was like, I think I was 12, I was pretty young the first time a doctor told me that it would be very difficult for me to have a biological child because of my, they didn't have the words Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome at the time, but they were telling me about this hypermobility, how I'd have a very high risk pregnancy and that that's something I should always keep in the back of my mind. So that like at the time scared me when I wanted a biological child. And so I was like, well, I, I did always say I wanted to adopt a child too. So I had in the back of my head, like, I'll be just fine. Even if I, even if I can't have a kid, like I will be just fine. I'll still be able to be a mom. And like when, when Royce and I first met, we were still talking about like, yeah, we'll probably, you know, have kids at some point. We're just not in a hurry. And, and now it, it's less certain. We, we very well may never <laughs> and that would be fine. But it, it started striking me where I was like, if I ever have a child, it's not going to be the biological way because I would not only put me in danger, but my child. And also, I, I'm ace and I don't want to do that. <laughs> Right. And for for a while, I was like, well, it would it would just be like a household chore if I had to. But then I hear all these stories of even allosexual people that are like, when we were trying to conceive, we were like on a tight schedule. We had to, you know, we had to try to conceive a child at X, Y, and Z time and as often as possible during. And I was like, oh, that sounds terrible. I I don't want to do that. So so like in the back of my head, I was like, you know what, adoption is going to be the only option for us if that is in the cards and and it, and it occurred to me like 
I've started meeting friends who have been adopted, who have been in the foster care system. I know how traumatized a lot of them are from that system. I need to learn more about the system itself if I'm ever even going to make an educated decision about whether or not this would ever be for us. And then I'd start seeing very flippant, especially like right before Roe versus Wade got overturned, we'd still have, you know, very religious, very like anti-abortion people like occasionally make a post on Facebook that would just blanketly be like, please, if anyone out there is considering aborting your child, please don't do it. I will adopt your child. Don't you worry. And and like, you've never adopted a child before. You you already like have your own kid. And sure, maybe you have the financial means to take on another kid, but you're just, you don't really mean that. <laughs> I think even if you think you mean it, you don't. <laughs> Like, and that those things like really made me realize how flippantly people tend to think about adoption. And then I, then I started looking at, you know, activists who are, who have openly talked about adoption. One, one that comes to mind is actually, um, Lydia X.E. Brown, who they are ace and Asian, but they're a transracial adoptee. So they've talked about the additional trauma on top of that. <laughs> and like just hearing those stories, it's like, man, I, I like, I don't know if we are ever going to foster or adopt or anything like that, but I care very deeply about learning more about this system and these firsthand experiences because it's, it's wow, the, the way people talk about it. And sometimes there is like a very white saviorism about it too. Like, I think we've all heard the horror stories of like a white Christian family that's like, I adopted a child of color from a developing country and I, I saved them and I brought them to America. It's like, that's, that's colonialism. <laughs> Absolutely. And see, that's the thing. I'm like, when people have those posts and stuff like that, I'm always looking at them like, you, you really think you did something? Like, you really thought you, you thought that was okay? Like, and to other people who aren't in the foster care system, in the adoption spaces, they're like, oh my God, that's so nice. Like, they're, they're so right. And I'm like, they're not really because you're trying to, first of all, take autonomy from somebody when, like, if they choose to do what they choose to do, then that's fine. Right. And like you were saying about like giving birth and pregnancy and stuff I have a fear of pregnancy I am literally like my family has like I don't think they intended to but I literally have a fear of pregnancy I would never like I I couldn't do it you know I have a fear of, like surgery too and stuff and so it's like I, it wouldn't be an option for me you know like even my partner wants kids like biologically and I'm just like can't we just adopt like you know what I'm saying like <laughs> I'm going to obviously be attached to the adopted kids where, you know, it's, it's going to be cool on both ends and stuff, but they really want like a biological kid. I think a lot of people do. And it's like, I don't know, like even the language around like how people talk about having a, a biological kid and like, oh, I can't adopt. I need a biological kid. Like I'm going to be connected to the kid. I'm like, it's a kid. You should just be connected to them regardless. You know, it's just such a weird like space, you know, and then going into the topic of um like the transracial families and stuff I obviously can't relate and that's what I love about like the adoption system and foster care because it's so vast and there's so many different types of people here and different experiences and like some good some great some horrible you know I have two people that I know of that are in the transracial adoption um, spectrum my friend Ben 
and it's it's so crazy how like things kind of line up uh his parents one of his parents his mom is like russian i believe and then his dad is of like israeli roots and stuff so right now he he's dealing with like his cousins being in israel and like the war and stuff like that <laughs> and i didn't even think about that i'm like you know i'm just like he, he's just a black kid that got adopted in my mind like by white people and i'm just like it's just that simple it's like no it's like his family is rooted with even the war that's happening now and like the issues that are happening now and just because he's black doesn't mean that it doesn't affect him any less you know because that's his family so i'm like that's really good because he's teaching me about this stuff and i didn't know because like i never you know and every other friend that i have is like it's just complicated and he's like no like i got the lowdown i know about it so i'm like very grateful for him and like his experience and i'm definitely always open to listen to him about his like his background and his family's background and stuff which is definitely interesting to listen about and then my other friend this is more on the foster parent side i guess because the child is a baby she's fostering a baby she's asian and so i'm like that's actually pretty cool because i've never seen a black family adopt an asian baby i've never as far as i know you know it's usually always like white person adopts black child out of white saviorism like you said so i was like that's that's really nice you know i'm like you know her mom is dealing with certain like issues and stuff and they really want to adopt her um but you know i'm like hoping they do because she's like a perfect addition to the family everybody loves her and they treat her you know just like one of theirs they deal with a lot of foster care um kids and stuff like that and they deal with kids with disabilities as well so i'm like you know i think it's you know a little it's a good you know family for her to grow up in and stuff but i do wonder like how it's gonna affect her you know like being asian in a black family definitely would be like like where's my root you know and like even the cultural impact of the black culture and stuff she's gonna you know indulge in like culture the food and stuff and she's probably gonna feel like i kind of lost out on knowing about my asian roots and stuff and i just really do hope that they are open and receptive to like let her you know explore that if she does want to explore that you know like the transracial like I can't speak on it like if it's good or if it's bad but I do think that it has its perks but then also probably does have its downfalls and that's something that we definitely need to talk about especially because now people think transracial is like when you're you're one race and you want to like it's like what we talked about earlier about how the colloquialism mm-hmm. <laughs> they think trans racial is like oh i'm black but like now i'm asian it's like no it was a word for adopted rachel dolezal (laughs) right exactly I'm like it was a word for adopted people and then y'all just kind of threw us out the window and was like no nah, this is about trans people and it's like and about race and I'm like no it was about black kids getting adopted by white families Asian kids getting adopted by Hispanic families like stuff like that which we don't have any topics about nobody talks about it no media coverage you know and I'm just like it definitely is something that we definitely all need to like tune into you know yeah and there, there's going to be a spectrum of how positive or negative that experience can be on a case-to-case basis Basis, but if you like zoom out and just look at it as a whole, obviously there is the very like uh, white colonial mindset that I think a lot of people have and that, that they apply to their idea of what adoption looks like and what it is and how it's they probably see it in, in rose colored glasses far more than is warranted. But you also have the fact of like all of these are are people individually and people are always going to have their own biases. And like you could have a foster parent who just is racist (laughs) 
And uh, it's it's not a hundred percent of the time going to be negative if if there is a transracial adoptee situation. Sometimes, d- depending on a case to case basis, it might be unavoidable. But if the parents adopting in that situation aren't at least educated on the basics of racism, if they aren't equipped to talk to the kid about race, if they aren't willing to let that kid explore their roots and their heritage that they they may feel has been taken away from them, if they aren't willing to learn about those things and work through it, that can be a problem. And in situations of fostering, there can also be maybe the biological parents are still in the picture and the goal is to get them back to their parents. There are also going to be people who are like, well, what what's the reason? Is it, you know, is it addiction? Is it mental health? And then are there people who are just going to like look down on poor people? Like if it's a situation of poverty, are they going to be like, well, I know best for this child than their biological parent. Are they going to be blaming the parent for not being a good enough parent? Are they going to be putting a bug in the ear of that child that like, I, I know better than your actual parents? Like, or even ableism, if it's a mental health issue that hopefully you can work towards with the parent and then they'll get to a stable enough place to to be able to parent. It's like, there are so many ableists people just in general, and some of them are bound to be foster parents. So I think when when you were talking about like classes earlier, it's like I I haven't been in one of these classes, but I assume they don't take a very intersectional lens on a broad spectrum of issues like that that could arise depending on what child gets put in your care. Exactly. Like, and it's, I'm not sure if they update it or anything, but it's just like, I don't know, the way that people don't even, can't even do the basics, like we said earlier about like not making your kid feel like crap about wanting to reach out about their parents. I'm like, these classes must be horrible. (laughs) Like, you know, maybe I should update that, you know? It's just like, it is very concerning because like, like we said, it's just so many different cases and people just kind of are like, oh, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be perfect for this kid. They're going to be very stable. They're not going to have any problems because they're being adopted and they're not in their drug addict mother's care and stuff. And that's how I always tell my family. I'm like, look, great things happen. I'm in a perfect place. I get whatever I want. I can ask anything and you give it to me. But the way I communicate with people, the way I make friends, the way I have partners is affected through me being adopted. And that's something you cannot like just ignore because, you know, those things are going to plague you for like the rest of your life, you know, and you don't want to you don't want to be a burden to people more than you already feel like you are, especially being an adoptive, you know, the adoptive system. And these things are not set up for us in mind, you know. So I do definitely want to make sure that we talk about your webcomic. So this this came on my radar because of a video that you posted to YouTube not too terribly long ago. The the token black asexual, the asexual departure or or something like that was that the title? Yes, it was. I found that video very fascinating and it it's you doing artwork which I I love seeing other artists work cuz your your art form is way different than any art form that I have ever practiced. So I always love seeing the process but it was just you talking and thinking and and ruminating through thoughts about the ace community and where we've been and where you want to go and I'd love to just here in your own words, and I'd love for you to explain to the audience what your thoughts are in that video and why 
well, just everything about your comic and the, this new project and what it means to you, what the themes are. Let's let's have all of it. Definitely. Um, so basically, I've been working on this little comic called um, Trauma. It's actually a small part of a bigger comic that I was going to do. But I was like, I'm very like hard on myself. I'm like, I need to go to art school first. I got to go to art school and then I can make the big comic. But for now, I just wanted to do like a little three panel comic, maybe four panel. And then just like, you know, kind of introduce the character um, Trauma. So Trauma is a character that I made. Kind of got off easy by just naming her Trauma. Uh, <laughs> like I did not. I was like, what's her name? She doesn't know. Cool. Trauma, you know. Um, but she's like a very important character to me because she kind of offset the idea of basically where I want to go with a lot of my art and that's just including characters that are basically everything that I've dealt with you know like okay adoption cool we could talk about that because all the characters are adopted or like a good majority are adopted we could talk about being queer or like arrow ace because she's um she's both arrow and ace and so like I'm like I want to do you know talk about that but like I wanted to just be not always in the background, like there will be comics where she's talking about being ace or adopted or, you know, mental health and stuff. But it just like for now, I wanted it to be like a goofy little comic because, you know, just to get to know her, to know her power set and all that stuff. And like just things that little things about her before I kind of get into the bigger comic with all the other characters. So like for her, she was in the foster care system. I think she got it like the worst because um, she basically has experienced all like kind of like the negative parts of the adoption system and stuff like anything bad that you can imagine happening in the foster care system should probably happen to her like it just you know but she's like a kind of chipper child like she's kind of happy for somebody who's been going through a lot of trauma and stuff like that and then she's also very powerful because of like the things that happen kind of translated into her power set so she can like manipulate people like control them you know through men like mental things and like she can can control their emotions and it's it's so many things in terms of uh like her powers being connected to her being you know traumatized and stuff like that and um in the main comic basically she has these two like technically like friends but they kind of come off as like her parents because they're kind of what i don't know how to explain it i'm not sure about the ages yet but they kind of are in a queer platonic relationship where they're like not together but they just they kind of appear as a couple but they're not a couple and like they just very close and so they kind of come off as like a little family you know like the two parents and then a kid but it's just not a traditional family you know um so that's really where I am with the trauma comics and just trying to get her started and jump started in my mind and kind of figuring out where I want to put her and stuff and then in terms of the video that I had made that was definitely something I was thinking about because I noticed that when I try to go into like the Twitter space and like just other spaces and stuff like it was always hard for me to like kind of introduce these characters because first of all I always felt like I had to make everything about like asexuality and stuff like that and I couldn't really diverge into anything else because people only know me for like being ace and black and it just kind of felt defeating because you know me going to school is for you know learning about comics and you know doing different characters that I like and you know stories that I can follow 
And I feel like during that time, it really made me question a lot of things because I'm like, okay, that's what I'm known for, right? I don't want to be just known for that. I want to be an artist. I want to be a writer. I want to be this. I want to, I think that people should be more than what people's first impression of them is and stuff. So I think that that's something that we as a community need to kind of dive deep into. Like if Aces and Comics decided to just, you know, do like a fashion thing, we should also support that just as much as like, you know, their comic work and stuff and whatnot. I feel like everybody should be able to dabble in what they want to dabble in and people just be receptive. Like if it's not your cup of tea, that's cool. But if you do like fashion and you like Ace and Arrow experiences, then that's perfect for you, you know, because it shouldn't just be about one thing. And that kind of segues into like, even in the comic book industry right now, a lot of um comic book artists are, they're usually put on certain types of books. So say like you're Arrow Ace creator and stuff, they're going to try to put you towards Arrow Ace characters and stuff so you can write that character and stuff. And I had thought about it and I was like, I actually, I like that. 100%. But also, on the other hand, I feel like it's debilitating, where it's like a lot of Black creators can only write Black characters. And DC and Marvel, they already don't pay attention to their Black characters. Like, where's Vixen? Bumblebee? Onyx? You know, any of the male characters? Like, Mal Duncan, Bumblebee's partner? They never, like, show up for them. And so I'm expected to write this character that nobody really cares about, which obviously, like, I care about them because, you know, I connection and I'm very happy to see Black characters. But it's sad because they expect us to only do what we know, right? And I'm like, I relate more to Rose Wilson than any character because she's my favorite character. But just because she's Asian and white doesn't mean that I can't write her, you know? Like, she literally has daddy issues. I'm like, that's literally my whole thing. I could just write her, you know? <laughs> One of her siblings is dead. Like, and then her other sibling is mute. And I'm like, disability, dead siblings, daddy issues, mommy issues. Like, she's me. Like, <laughs> so it's like it's so weird when they want to put you in like this box in this category just because you know oh you're this and you're this thing and those are the only two things you can ever be and those are the only characters you can ever like make and stuff and it's just it's just very like it's hurtful I think because I don't want to just be that and even I don't know even with the comic and stuff like that I think one of the characters that um I made her name's Ace and she's the leader basically and she's like the girl failure she just she's horrible she's just <laughs> she doesn't <laughs> she doesn't do what she's supposed to she's not a good leader you know and stuff like that and she's just she's like if you have that parent that like up and left and went to go get milk that's what she is like you know and I love her tremendously and I don't know like I can't relate to her because she's like you know Hispanic and uh white that's her race but she is ace and she's also um well I guess a girl failure <laughs> and I feel like I relate to those things and stuff so it's like just because you aren't something and you know there are certain parts and stuff that's not the only thing you have to focus on you know like I don't have to just I don't have to make her black just because you know she is a part of my um story that relates to me feeling inadequate her maybe her inadequacy can go hand in hand with like how you know Hispanic kids feel when they aren't living up to you know their family's expectations and stuff like that and I feel like just making stories where you know you can branch out and have different experiences and stuff and just try to understand people through your art and stuff is like really important 
And yeah, like one character I have, his name is Sun. He's um a gay character and I based him off of my um friend, uh Jalen. And he um me and him kind of came together and talked about like, you know, the experiences of gay men and stuff. And like one thing that I noticed all the time with gay men is that a lot of straight women kind of flock to them in order to like, you know, oh, like I need you to tell me if my man is gay on the low. So like like I'll know. Like you use them as an accessory. So like that's something I definitely wanted to you know, like dabble in and try to like bring to the world because a lot of these topics and situations don't get talked about. Adoption, disability, you know, all those things and just try to put them in a comic and then, you know, like understand my own trauma, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, those are all really great points. And I, I think we even said at the beginning of this episode that we all have several identities that make us up as a whole person. And I mean, part of the issue can be the nature of the internet and the current state of algorithms, because I, I even mentioned like, oh, I found myself on adoptee TikTok. It's like, well, if any of those people that talk about adoption issues all of a sudden talk about something else, the algorithm isn't going to show that video to as many people. And that's why you're able to find yourself in a hole of the same topic over and over again. But I, I don't even know what what Twitter's uh, up to these days. I feel like it's so much worse than it used to be, and it was never great. <laughs> like the last year, I feel like people that I followed that I used to see on my timeline every single day, I now find myself being like, "Oh, I haven't seen any posts from Asexual Goddess recently. Let me go to that account to see what's up." Nope, there are recent posts. Why weren't they shown in my feed? I and and like that. That's just something that like happens and is happening more often. Often, which is unfortunate, but I found that a bit with my own artwork too. Cause like, yeah, we have our ace couple account and we talk about ace things. We have a podcast. We post when we have new episodes and whatnot. And we try to talk about a variety of topics and at least our regular listeners tend to like on Spotify and Apple, they, they tend to be pretty consistent numbers. They tend to listen to most, if not all of our episodes. But when we cross post to YouTube, just so like we, we do it for accessibility so that people can have closed captions if they like to read along as they're listening. Those numbers are all over the place. Like if, if it's a topic that isn't popular, it's going to tank and not get as many views. If it's something that is trending, if it's especially like a media analysis for a popular show, like those are going to get a lot more views on YouTube. And we don't get numbers fluctuating as much on the podcast platform. So I know there's an algorithm about it, but I don't think it can all be blamed exclusively on the algorithm because I do think within our own ACE community that we are taking baby steps and we're getting better about talking about some intersectional issues like we are talking about like support black aces. We are talking about support disabled aces, but it's kind of like intersection ace <laughs> and it has to be two. Like uh, I follow this person because they're a black ace. I follow this person because they're a disabled ace. <laughs> and to a certain extent, I feel like if people try to expand their horizons and talk about other things and share other interests and passions, it flies way under the radar because I, I'm curious to hear what your theories are because you, you express some of this in, in the token black asexual, but there, there certainly is tokenism involved there. But I also just think that we're not 
a real community as much as we try to pretend like we are. I feel like we'll say the ACE community. And a lot of us, at least on our own respective platforms, like there is an ACE Twitter. If you are on ACE Twitter, you probably know, you know, the same couple dozen names (laughs) that come up time and time again. So you probably know those people. And because you all know those people and other people all know those people, it feels like a pseudo community. So we can say the ACE community, but there's not nearly as much of actual like reaching out and having personal conversations and making personal connections and developing like a real tangible community as much as we'd like to. And and I was thinking about this when you were saying that since you can relate to the trauma of adoption, you also want to be someone that can support others who are used to that and you want them to be able to talk to you about that. We don't get that much in the ACE community. A lot of us just sort of post out into the void and if people resonate with it, they'll like it and they'll share it. And then we just go around in circles all day forever doing that without like tangibly supporting one another like a real community is supposed to. Absolutely. And that's that was that's where like sometimes I just don't even get on my like face Twitter because I'm like, I don't want to just be a person that's constantly like just tweeting stuff and trying to like get likes. I don't really care about that kind of stuff. I'm really like, you know, if it's an issue and it's plaguing like, you know, Yasmin or uh, Marshall or just anybody in the community that, you know, needs the support, then I'm ready to try to use my platform to get that, you know, information out. Like rarely is it about myself. Like I don't really care about the numbers. I'm usually in my own world trying to do my art and stuff like that so like being famous on twitter is not my goal being famous on youtube is not too much of my goal it's just that you know it it was something that i noticed and like honestly if i could like get marshall or jasmine or jasmine's kind of already in that you know everybody kind of sees her fear or whatever or you know anybody else that wants to be like out there and activists and stuff like that if i can get them there i would try to boost them as much as i can but it's just like you know i just i'm like i wanted to do something for the ace community because i love this community and like you said it's kind of a pseudo community because they kind of support where they want to but like i, I want to make ace characters regardless of if you know i stay on twitter or youtube or whatever i'm always going to make ace characters like half of the characters in the little comic i was making are ace like one of them's literally named ace so like you know asexuality is a big part of you know my life and i think that we definitely need more characters we need more comics we need more literally everything that can help us get on the map so that people stop treating us like we're infants and treating us like oh my god you don't have sex i would literally die like you know just (laughs) it's really about the exposure and making sure that you know we not hit mainstream but just so that we people can know so that they can stop being ignorant towards ace people like that's really my goal And so I just feel like if that's the route that I want to go down and stuff, I feel like I and I don't know, it always felt selfish because it's like, you know, people might not resonate with your art and stuff like that. And like you said, with the algorithm, definitely have seen that because one of my favorite um, TikTokers, I have to look up her name for her stuff to come up. So I'm like, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Like the algorithm is just kind of whack, you know? So I'm like, maybe that's it, you know? But then I'm like, maybe it's because I'm making black majority black black characters and stuff and maybe people just can't relate to that and like you had said earlier about how um you know oh this person's uh ace and disabled and black and disabled and we kind of just go off into those intersections of like oh this person's black and disabled uh black and ace let me follow them because i'm black and i'm a 
ace or, you know, I'm disabled and I'm ace. And, you know, that's cool to curate your feed to however you want it to be. Heck, half the time I'm talking about disability more than I talk about being ace at this point or like adoption. So you really will get a Russian roulette and I barely post. So I'm not going to be like your whole feed all the time. You know, that's always the part that got me. You know, I try to definitely be more diverse and stuff because like I'm realizing there are so many different intersections to my identity. Disability is important to me. Mental health is important. Being adopted is important. You know, art is definitely important because that's where I want to make my money from, you know, one day and stuff. So like, as you can see, my little room is literally just art. You know, it's very important to me so I feel like the rebranding was kind of like okay I want people to take me more serious for my art and it kind of backfired but like I don't know like I'm still kind of in the in the middle because I'm definitely still going to do my little um webtoons the webcomic definitely that because always gonna be down to draw trauma and stuff like that but now I'm trying to like in the middle ground of should I keep the um should I keep the YouTube channel the same or should I change it back and I'm thinking about changing it back but only because like I do feel like you know Marshall always tells me gentle giant he always tells me like my content was like his first like you know exposure to like a lot of like black ace people and stuff like that so he could relate and I'm like okay that's you know and I was doing a lot of educational things about like teaching people different orientations and stuff like that so it was like very important and stuff and I feel like I still have the videos they're just kind of on private and so I'm like I maybe just unprivate it and then try to make more videos for the ace community and then try to put in my artwork where it fits in and stuff like that like I'm trying to figure out what I want to do I'm kind of in limbo right now but you know I'm trying to get into school as well so I'm trying like I'm not too worried about it but like if I can get a better setup for my YouTube then I feel like I'll be more confident but also there's not a lot to talk about in the ace community like i think <laughs> you know like right now i think the biggest convo right now is the um sex education thing with yasmin like, <laughs> yeah that's that's still pretty fresh <laughs> Yeah. And everybody's just like, wow, like, you know, people are having different opinions and stuff like that. And, you know, we're like, yeah, them darn TV productions, they're gonna treat ace people like we're the most boring people on earth. I just I don't know. I don't want my channel to always just be like, oh, like so and so is fighting on Twitter, you know, and stuff like I just want it to be something of substance. And, you know, I could definitely make more videos about like different orientations and stuff like that and trying to inform people. But, you know, trying to do both is especially since now I'm like trying to go to art school I probably should focus more on the art school aspect in terms of my art and try not to make it like a YouTube career thing too because then it kind of it kind of clashes so I'm like I don't know I don't know I really do want to bring back my ace channel because I know it means a lot to a lot of people so I don't know Speaking of Marshall, I mean, this is a bit of a side tangent, but have you listened to his recent episode? He was interviewed on Coming Out Pod. I haven't, but I've definitely seen he uh, posted about it. He shouted you out. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, he did. Oh my gosh. I love Marshall because he's always there for me. He's great. He is like such a good friend. He really is. Like we talk almost like every other night or whatever because we call each other. And so we always talking about something and like, you know, he's always, he's really has been my biggest advocate because I'm telling you, like, I am not a person that can sell my own product. I don't really, like, like I said earlier, I just don't, I care about my YouTube channel, but I'm not going to be like, I need to get like 1 million followers. Like, I'm like, whoever it reaches out to, whoever it, um, it helps or whatever, that's great. But he's definitely a person 
person that's always trying to push me to the forefront and make sure that people don't forget me and stuff. And sometimes I do feel forgotten in the ACE community when people make like posts and stuff and I never get tagged. I'm like, dang, I guess I wasn't that important, you know, but it's like, I just, I just feel like, you know, it definitely is good to have more different diversity in like a lot of the posts that kind of, you know, talk about different aces and stuff or whatever. So like, I think that's why it hurts a little because it's like, I want to talk about different stuff and, and, you know, I want to be able to, you know, not, it's not even about growing the audience and even like, it's just about if you can resonate with what I make and stuff, then that's perfect. But if not, that's cool too. Like, you know, it really is just about that. And so Marshall has been a big component in helping me in any way that he can. So uh, shout out to Marshall. I love him and his cakes. <laughs> Shout out to Marshall. I I don't know if I will have hung out with him by the time this episode goes live or not, but like we have been trying to set up another time to hang out for like so long, but I am the worst at like emails. My my inboxes, I have too many inboxes, first of all, and too many people trying to contact me on all of them and also trying to plan ace week things. I'm like, ah, every single day I'm like, I still need to reach out to Marshall and also these 80 other people. <laughs> So, Marshall, I'm sorry it's taken so long. Love you. Shout out to you. Talk to you real soon after Ace Week is calmed down. But here, here's like uh, along those same lines, and I don't know if this um, will will help give you any clarity going forward, but I can at least tell you a little bit of my own experience as an artist who is also asexual because I... I mean, for, for several years, I would try to talk about like intersectional ace issues and the community was just not having it. So I couldn't get like a foothold in it for a really long time. So I was like, well, I tried. I'll try again in a couple months. But I had, I mean, I, I am a professional artist. It is my business. It is how I make a living. And so I had my like business accounts for my artwork. And for a long time, it was almost exclusively the combination of my artwork and the history behind this art form. And so I started building my audience there. And when I had like a decent following, like I don't know, 6,000 or so followers on Instagram and like a couple thousand on YouTube, like then I, there, there was an Ace Week where I was like, you know what? I'm going to make an Ace Week video on my hair work channel just because this is important to me and I want other people to learn about it. And what I found from doing that was my regular viewers who came originally for my artwork in the history started to say like, well, yeah, I want to learn more about the artist now and I want to learn more about who you are as the artist. And that was sort of the next step there. So I still retained those visit like those viewers when I started posting about ace things. But then I also started attracting ace people who had never given me the time of day before because they were like, oh, here's ace representation in a place I didn't expect. <laughs> And the novelty of that is something that's very weird to navigate in the community because now that we have our Ace Couple like podcast and Twitter, there were a couple times I tried sharing my artwork on the Ace Couple account and it got very little attention. So I was like, all right, if you establish yourself as an Ace account, people only care about the Ace things. But if you establish yourself as an art account and then occasionally talk about asexuality, people will care about the art and then also the asexuality. And so that was super weird. And it sounds like maybe that's something that's still true, even though it's been a couple years since I discovered that based on your own experience. And 
I, I was actually having this conversation with some of my fellow organizers because we have a, like a panel that we're doing for Disabled Ace Day. And we were trying to a couple months ago say like, what are what are all the events we want to do? What what are the resources we want to put out? How How do we do this year? And we were thinking, well, if we do a panel, where are we going to do the panel? And a lot of us have connections with a lot of the ACE orgs. So it's like, I'm sure if we ask really nicely, the Avon Livestreams channel will let us do it there. I'm sure we've got connections that we can ask. But we had to kind of take a step back and be like, well, not a lot of people actually pay attention to the Avon YouTube channel because <laughs> they just don't get a lot of viewership and they definitely are not going to get people from outside the ACE community. If we post it there, it's only going to be like very diehard ACE people looking for ACE content. Whereas I said, you know, is this just me? Is this just my own personal feeling? How do you guys feel? Like, I feel like if we were able to get a more broadly queer organization that is not a specific at all, if we had like a GLAD or a Trevor project or, or any of these other ones, if they let us do a panel on their YouTube channel about like aces and disability, is it just me or is the ace community going to be more excited about that than if we kept it in house? Cause everyone's going to be like, look, this big queer org noticed us. They're talking about ace things. And that will actually get a lot more buzz, not only within our community, but out of it. <laughs> so there, and, and everyone was like, yeah, actually that's, that's very true. That's exactly what would happen. <laughs> So it's one of those weird things where even within the ACE community, it's like we get into our little tiny bubble where ACEs start to not care about other outside issues. But then also we can't really draw in new people either because it's just kind of a, a sinkhole of, you know, I, I don't know. Does, does that make sense? Does that sound about right? <laughs> No, absolutely. That's exactly how it feels. Because I do feel like, you know, especially talking about wanting to talk about other LGBT like issues and stuff, like, because also um, I'm on the bisexual spectrum and stuff. So I'm like, yeah, I, I want to talk about that. But then I'm like, what if the aces hate it? Like, you know, and it's just like, it's really like, you know, you, you got to go fishing for like, okay, maybe you, the ace, the bi aces will, you know, relate and they'll, they'll want to, you know, um, see it and stuff. Or you got to kind of rely on the, the other not a related LGBT people to kind of tune in and stuff, which also feels like you're copping out. But it's like it's so weird because it's like you just want to, like you said, you just want to reach more people sometimes, and you just you can't because they're like you know if it's not ace related, like I don't care. That goes hand in hand with the intersection, like you said, where it's like you could you could talk about being ace and like adopted, but like I don't get that one part, like the adoption part. So it's nothing to do with me or I'm not looking actively looking for those resources or information. So like, yeah, I don't really care. And I get that because like I probably do that, too, you know, until I go into something and I'm like, OK, there's importance to this and stuff like that. And I try not to fault anybody because I get it because as a person whose attention span is like three seconds long, I like I get it. Like, <laughs> 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 right, right. Yeah. It's so strange because I feel like part of the pitfall of not really feeling like a real community actually comes from a diehard desire to have and find a community. 
And so it seems kind of counterintuitive, but I think people find the quote ACE community because they want a community. So they're looking for that ACE specific connection. Whereas people are still looking for that in other areas too. That's why we're so uh, hyper fixated on like ACE representation in the media because we want to see and find that connection in other places. So when when I would like occasionally talk about ACE issues on my business platform, then I would occasionally get people who would be like, this is the first I've ever learned about asexuality. Thanks for teaching me something new. So you're reaching other people outside of the community for one, but then you'd get ACE people coming in because they're like, oh, wait, an ACE. Maybe I can make a connection over here. So you when it comes from like an art or a personal platform that is an ACE specific, it's like people already care about your work as an artist or they care about you as a person as an artist already. So they still care about the the aceness when you start to talk about it. But with this desire to find a community because you haven't had it, you haven't had that connection, you're like ace, ace community, this is where I want to be. But then you sort of get so focused on that community that you start disregarding the the personal aspects of it. Because now you're looking at people as another ace that shares a space with me rather than seeing like the whole person. And so it's it's sort of a sort of a vicious cycle where in looking for community and trying too hard to find community, you almost dig yourself into a hole where it's never going to be a real community. Absolutely. Like, you know, when I did the little rebranding, I think it was kind of out of like a fear because I'm like, I don't want to just be known as like, like a activist all the time where it's like, I, obviously I'm cool with it. You know, like if that's what people know me as the asexual artist, that's cool. But like, I don't want my whole like life to just be, you know, ace, 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 because like like I said I'm like other things too so it's like if that's what people know me as I'm like okay maybe I just kind of branded myself wrong and you know maybe if I can try to if I could skew it towards something that I do like that I would do for the rest of my life like art then maybe like people would try to be a little more receptive and then just like accept it because maybe I branded it wrong the first time and so like I was kind of trying to find a way out I think and that's where the the new channel comes in but and even now, I just like, I feel like I kind of robbed the ACE community of like important things that they, um you know, like they had before, like the certain videos and stuff. But also I do understand the importance of trying to like make sure that you do what you want to do. And then, you know, but you're right. Like I should just create a separate channel or just create a separate like Instagram and focus on my art. And then the people that are receptive will come and then they'll be like, oh, this character is ACE. That's cool. Like, you know, like, and maybe it'll spread that way and stuff. But yeah. I do feel like in terms of like my characters, I I want them to be tied to the ace community, but I want them to be tied to other communities too. You know, like I want them to be like, oh, this character is adopted and they just so happen to be ace too. Like I can relate in that sense and stuff, you know? And so it is a conundrum to like deal with all of these things like at once and stuff, but... <laughs> Well, it's vicious to, to begin with that social media kind of forces yourself to brand yourself, even if you're just a person. Like, I'm just me, but the the vicious nature of the algorithm and the way that everyone above a certain follower count is kind of like a little pseudo-celebrity in their own little pockets. It's like, it kind of forces you to brand yourself, even if you're just trying to be yourself. Yeah. So that's that's something that I've really struggled with over the years a lot. 
Definitely. And it's like, I'm trying to, like, because of this and being in these spaces, you do start to see, like, a lot of people's, you know, channels do better with certain things than other ones and stuff. And I started to feel bad because I'm like, yeah, I know how that feels. Like, you know, this video got like a thousand views. This video got zero, you know, and it's like, but I really like the zero one. I thought people were. And so now I'm looking at it like, hey, if somebody makes content, I'm going to just watch it. Even if it's just on in the background, just give them that, like, you know, respect for the work that they put in and it's like you know because half the time like I said tension span three seconds so hey like <laughs> some plan in the background isn't going to affect me while I'm drawing you know it's just giving them watch time maybe getting them paid or something it's just being considerate and trying to like you know but I think that that's something that people have to go through to like understand it and then you kind of change your ways it's kind of like I call it like the politician effect where <laughs> if the politician only really cares if it's happening to them they're like oh my son is disabled now I care like like, and it's like, you should have cared before, you know, but I get, it. yes, you know, like you have to, you have to see it and understand it to be like, that is an issue. Like, I'm going to try to do better for other people so that hopefully it'll come back. Are, are there any other topics that you're itching to get to? We talked a lot about adoption, the community, the, the comic, but I want to make sure that you have the space if there's anything we haven't even brought up yet that you want to talk about. Um, I don't know. I feel like as soon as I get off, I'm gonna be like, oh, yeah, I should have talked about that. No, but we'll take notes. We'll do a part two. <laughs> yes, that would be amazing. <laughs> I'm always down for a podcast. Trust me. I need it. Uh, need something to do sometimes because just in the house <laughs> but yeah mostly i'm just you know right now i'm just trying to get my stuff together for um art school that's really my goal right now so if y'all see less and less of me on twitter or youtube and stuff like that's probably why but hopefully once i'm done with the two years that i have maybe i'll make a the full comic you know because that is really my goal right now but you know trying to focus on trauma and the other characters and stuff yeah that's pretty much my whole thing right now <laughs> Well, I look forward to reading more. Uh, we, we've we read the, is it, I, I think, four panels. Is that how much you have up now? Are there more now? Yeah. I think it's like four four or five chapters and then like three or four panels each. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I've seen at least the first four chapters and it's, it's, it's beautiful work. And, and honestly, I, I didn't know that you were already such an accomplished artist. Like it's great. And I mean, I, I followed you for how long now, but it was kind of ironic and sort of like proved some of the points you were talking about in that video. I hadn't seen a post from you for so long. And honestly, a lot of people, like even some of our like closest friends in the ACE community, and I'm like, where are the, all their posts? What's going on? And you you use the words like black and asexual in the Twitter post. And you were like, oh, I, I am tired of having to only talk about being black and asexual. And like, that was the first post I had seen from you in a really long time. And I was like, of course. <laughs> Of course, in your critique of the very same thing. That's the first time I see this. <laughs> exactly. And I had to kind of like, it always feels like, logistics and stuff where you have to be like okay i have to add these words i have to do this i have to do that it's exhausting yeah like i don't want to just use black asexual as like 
the scapegoat all the time. Like, I don't want to have to be like black asexual just for more, you know, but I'm like, uh, this kind of like the hole I put myself in. If I had understood the algorithm a little more, maybe I would have tried to do something a little different. You know, maybe I would have curated it towards like comics or, you know, Ace Comics would have been cool or just comics being there in general as the main thing that gets boosted. That would have been cool. So now it's just basically about like trying to rework that and just, you know, trying to figure out how that even happens. How do you rework something that's kind of set into the system now? You know, like, yeah, I mean, it's it's so frustrating, but I, I am glad that in that post that you made that you did use those words and that it came across my feed because then I was able to click on the video, watch it, hear your thoughts, see your process. And then I was able to find the link to the first couple chapters of the comic. And I was like, great, now I have a comic to follow. But then I went back like directly to your account and I was scrolling down and down and down. And you had mentioned the comic before that post that I saw and it had it had so little views, engagement, like nothing. And I was like, well, I certainly didn't see this either. And now I'm mad because Twitter, I wanted to see this. Like if the people I follow have a new project, I want to know about it. Exactly. <laughs> like it's, it's horrible all the way around. Like I just, you know, it makes me kind of wish that we were back in the days where like you just draw the comic and it somehow gets it like, you know, the newspapers and like literally if I could just go out and hand it by hand and stuff, that would be cool. <laughs> you know, like because we think social media is so much better. It's really not like I'm like, if you can block somebody's content and make them feel isolated and they have to talk about one thing, that's not that's not good. I don't know. It's just no. like it, it is useful to get the memo out and stuff but you gotta hope and pray to like hopefully it'll reach somebody you know and they'll spread it and stuff and it's just it's defeating mm -hmm. well we are absolutely going to be putting links in the show note to the comic so that our listeners can go check it out also i implore all of you to do so but where are all the other places that uh, people can find you yeah just mostly you know twitter right now I had an Instagram, but I think I might want to redo that one. It was like eccentric, but I Oh, that's a great name. <laughs> oh no, 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 no. It was no, it was a different name, but like eccentric. Oh, oh, two words. It was ace centric. I see. I, I thought you were making a pun like eccentric, but eccentric. <laughs> that's, that's smart. And then I'm like, that's actually pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that would be actually pretty cool. No, but yeah, um, I don't know where that one's at right now, but I'll see about that one. And then, yeah, like mostly I'm just on YouTube. Um, YouTube and Twitter, I would say those are the main ones. Probably going to rebrand one more time on YouTube. Who knows? We'll see. Because, hey, if I get into art school, I probably won't have time to be on YouTube. But if you definitely want to check out any art, um, my main Instagram is because like I post art on there sometimes, but I feel like it's not the best or like you can kind of see sometimes where um you know i grew and where i didn't but my main instagram is called kimmy b12 underscore so if you want to guys want to check that out and then um right now the youtube literally if i get it off today it'll probably be back to the asexual goddess i don't know i don't <laughs> but i just say look up the asexual goddess on youtube if you want to see youtube videos i might just you know so who knows i'm very like all over the place sometimes so well, we'll have the link down there for whatever name it currently is. 
yeah you might switch but hey and then uh i was gonna ask uh yeah if you you know could send me the link to your art stuff because i definitely would love that i need more art stuff on my timeline you know just different types of art oh sure i mean well the the I can do that, but I have not really been posting much on social media, like at all anywhere. So I think I literally have not touched my Instagram in like a year. <laughs> I I have my Patreon for people that like uh, throw me a few bucks every month, but like, I don't know. I had a YouTube channel for a while. It was actually a colleague of mine who was actually like a pretty famous, like really big YouTuber. <laughs> like encouraged me to start a YouTube channel. She was like, if you start a YouTube channel, it's going to be really popular. And so I started doing like little history and art videos and I got some viewers, I got some patrons from it. But the thing is, I don't like making videos. I like having conversations with people and I like teaching people and I like teaching classes and I would like like lecturing. I, I have lectured at museums and colleges and I like being in front of an audience and performing that way. But I don't like sitting in my living room in front of a camera that we had to fiddle with for an hour to get it looking just right. And then uh, like, I don't like that. <laughs> so it was like every time I was like, oh, I should post a YouTube video. It was just becoming a hassle. And I didn't want it to be a hassle because I love the history and I love the art. I didn't want to hate the medium by which I was sharing it. Oh, no, definitely. Yeah, video recording days were often a hassle. And that's part of why this show is in audio-only format. Because it's it's a lot easier for two of us to sit at a table around a microphone than it is for Courtney alone to sit in front of a camera. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> I feel you. Like, I think I stopped making most of, like, my, like, the content, like, video content, because it is hard to just sit down sometimes. Like, whether it's because, you know, you might have different ideas and you don't know how to, like, because the video script thing even in itself is hard. Because, like, I could write something down and then I'm like, I got to stick to the script. And then I'm like, I just thought of something on the fly, you know, and it's it's definitely not always the main go-to. So I think it's pretty cool that you guys like, like have the podcast that definitely is more like free flowing and it definitely, you know, kind of is more authentic and natural. So it definitely works. Yeah. Well, it also just helps us get out more content because it's very low effort. <laughs> Like it, it really is. It's it's low effort, low time because I I could write essays about every single topic we've talked about, and I have written some. I I mean I am a writer to some extent, but it takes longer to write like a thousand or two thousand word article than it does to sit down and record a two hour long podcast, which we can do every single week, even though we're trying to not do two hours every single week, or at least rice every time we're recording is like, this episode is getting long. You know, we're going to make another one next week. We can pick this up later. <laughs> and I'm like, but I have so many things to say. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I wanted to thank you guys for letting me on. You know, um, I haven't done anything like this in a while. Definitely does make me feel, you know, very special. <laughs> you are. You are special. You're probably among the first few, like, Twitter accounts that we actually followed when we started our Twitter account. Like, you were definitely in the first, like, batch. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm glad. Yeah, I just hope that people, you know, like, learn something today. 
learned that I'm kind of versatile. Like I just, you know, different components and stuff and definitely different things that I care about. Like I'm not just a black ace, like, you know, but I mean, if that, that is something that I want to talk about, it should be one of those things. So. Yeah. And I mean, care about the whole person and let's, let's try to start building something that feels like a more tangible community and see everyone's different identities and and how it makes up the whole person. And I mean, I'm really excited. Hopefully more people will uh, be turned on to your artwork because it is lovely artwork. I mean, here you're saying, oh, I want to go to art school. And I'm like, but why? You're already so good. (laughs) (laughs) It's because I'm not disciplined. And I'm like, look, um, I've been an artist for like, dang, 24 years at this point. I feel like it came out the womb, feels like it, you know. I'm always like, I'm not disciplined to learn composition, perspective, and like light and shadow. And I'm like, why did it take so long? Like, what is wrong? You know? So I'm like, I could do it by myself, but I do feel like I need a little extra push and just, you know, try to learn how to network with people and just... Sure. Yeah, just like the discipline still would have to come from me. Like going to school isn't going to make me disciplined all of a sudden, but you know... Because if you notice, I don't draw hands and I don't draw backgrounds and I don't draw dynamic like ah perspective. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm trying to get there. You know, I want to be able to do it all. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there there's always more to learn. So I, I certainly get that. Definitely. Yeah. But yeah. So listeners, please follow. Are, are we still calling you the asexual goddess? Are you the artist formerly known as the asexual <laughs> goddess? <laughs> I mean, yeah, you can still call me the asexual goddess. I'm definitely, you know, definitely still want to be in the community. I want to be like helping people because I love this community and it means so much to me. So like I want to make content for ace people, you know, so yeah, the asexual goddess is fine. Yeah. Well, all right, listeners, you heard it here. Go follow the asexual goddess in all of the various endeavors and projects. And once again, I do just want to give everyone out there very happy Ace Week. For our Allo listeners out there, I know there are a few of you. I see you. Make sure to send your local Aces cake and or garlic bread uh, or dragons or black rings or axolotls. Uh, maybe just a care package with all of those things stuffed in it. Just go, go forth. Uh, prove your allyship through presence (laughs) and we will all talk to you same time same place next week goodbye